0: Hello and welcome to Wavell Talks. This podcast is going to cover the Land Warfare Conference fringe event that the Wavel Room hosted. We have an introduction from the Assistant Chief of the General Staff, General Rupert Jones, and then we have live blogs covering diverse subjects such as drugs in warfare, multi-domain battle, and decision-point tactics. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Firstly, thank you for asking me to say a couple of words. I think more importantly, really well done to you, you know, I think the British Army historically has been really good at this. It's been really good at harnessing the intellectual kind of ideas of its organisation. I think In the last 20 years years or so, we have probably become less good at it. And we could all have a discussion about why that might be. But I think we have become less strong at it uh, over over recent years. I think there is a, a little bit of it in the British system that has always been there of uh, if you come up with the idea and you write about it, you have been to be too clever by half, And we suppress the good ideas. And if you do that for long enough, the young men and women joining the army will go, I'm not, not going to put myself forward with my good ideas, because I'm kind of bored of being told I'm too clever by half." So we've got to overcome that, and I hope you would recognise that the, the last Chief General Staff worked really hard at that. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I suspect you, you may not recognise it, but to some degree, I think the fact that room uh, was formed was in part because of what General Carter was saying to his army. Hey, look, have your say. Go back to being an intellectual and academic-based organisation. So, look, really, really well done to you for doing that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's your thing. Um, my, my own observation would be, um, aside from that, it's really exciting, is, you know, what we want... Is for you guys and girls to influence where the British Army is going. Yeah, it doesn't want to be a kind of, kind of ideas that you debate amongst yourselves. At some point, it has to influence the, the British Army. And I think something you need to discuss amongst yourselves over time is how do you do that? How do you turn your good ideas, and some of them will be rubbish ideas, and that doesn't matter at all, because you only get the good ideas while they're bad ideas, have the confidence in your bad ideas. How do you begin to turn those good ideas to begin to influence the, the British army? And that's for you to kind of work out. All I would say is the army is very happy to be, in um, I like, the institutions are very happy for you to engage, uh, but what you've got to find the sweet spot is you engage enough without the army wrapping its temples around you and kind of killing the imagination dead. And kind of you need to, you need to uh, own, own that. I think the only other things I'd say is, you know, when you come up with your ideas, they've got to be wedded in reality. There's some kind of cold past some practicalities out there, be it budgets, policy, whatever it might be. So, so think in terms of, of reality. Uh, and then I would advise you, you know, there'll be things that you can do that we as an army could do right now. And we haven't thought of it. And you might think of it. So the things that we can do really, really quite quickly. that perhaps don't need much money. They just need they need an idea and somebody to grab that idea. And then there'll be the kind of big ideas, the longer term ideas. Some of the things that Pippa Malgram was talking about today that are pretty fundamental challenges to Western militaries. How do we grapple with those? I'm pretty certain that the solutions of those problems ain't going to lie with my generation. If I'm brutally honest, looking around me, uh, it may well not lie with your generation. So the more, and there are some relatively young people in here, but the more you reach down into the really young men and women of the army, the more you will pull up uh, the very best ideas uh, I would offer. Um, But look, really, really well done. I'm going to get out of your way because uh, there's some uh, great pitches I'm confident about to come your way. Um, So I will leave you in their capable hands. But very, very nice to see you. And I commend you, particularly after the day we've just had, a long slog through the day to, uh, to keep at it into the evening. So thank you very much.
2: All right,
3: let's have our first author I'm Mike Martin, thank you very much for the warm-up speech. Um, so I'm not necessarily going to talk about the army, but I'm going to talk about conflict, I'm going to talk about evolutionary psychology. So, a lot of people say, and conflict scholars write about conflict being driven by morals, ideologies and religion. but. I don't think that's right, and the reason I don't think that's right is because those things, moral codes, religions, shared ideologies like democracy, have come about well after most of our brains evolved. Actually, our brains have evolved to pursue status and belonging, so social status and belonging to cohesive social groups. And those are the things that we fight for, because those are the only things in evolutionary terms that if you get them, they offset the death rate from war, and most wars throughout evolutionary history have had a death rate of somewhere between 30 and 50%. Most of that concentrated in the male 17 to 35 age group. So that's a selection pressure. So we're driven to fight because of status and belonging. And slightly after that, our conscious brain comes along and reinterprets those subconscious drives and it reinterprets them using the frameworks of moral codes, religions and shared ideologies because these are the things that we use to build groups. So we seek to belong to groups and that's what drives us to fight and that's how we explain conflict. So when we talk about war being about moral codes, religions and ideologies and we do genuinely think that actually what we're doing is our conscious brain is post-facto explaining our subconscious drives towards status and belonging through those frameworks. The
4: end. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Phil, and I'd like to talk to you about leadership in the post-millennial generation. For many years, much has been made about what problems and what opportunities millennials would bring to the army, but I believe this is short-sighted. Millennials are those born from the early 1980s to the late 1990s. That is not the generation that's joining the army. They're first tour majors, second tour captains, senior and junior non-commissioned officers and beyond. In actual fact, it's those born after 1997 that we need to think about. We've all had that horrible moment when a soldier with a 2000 birthday stands in front of you and you realise middle age is upon us. Okay? We need to look at how we deal with this next generation, what's different about them and what, what is the changes to come. Okay, for them, 9-11 is not the horrible day that we'll bring with them forevermore, it's a clip on YouTube. Operational tours to Iraq and Afghanistan are not a consequence of joining the army, but a possibility in the future. But I think most importantly is who they look to for inspiration. Not the sports stars of the past, not Hollywood actors, not pop stars, but actual fact talking heads. Individuals on YouTube and Instagram whose only currency they have to sell is their personality, and whose only um, qualification is internet access and a video camera. But millions and millions of these post-millennials, this Generation Z, this I-Generation, every single day look at these people on the internet and listen to what I have to say. It's personality that is key, okay? They're not so much interested in what we've done and who we are as what we believe in, what we stand in and who the person is. Not the rank on the arm or the appointment they hold, but the person that holds it. John Clifford Lord is still remembered 75 years on as the greatest warrant officer the Army's ever produced. Not necessarily, purely because he was a fantastic soldier, not necessarily because he was immaculate and turned out at all times, but because of a personality, he had a character. We need to regain that. We need to stop rewarding the people who just merely do what the person before them did and start rewarding the individuals. Lateral thinking, individuality, needs to stop being three words thrown on S jars and O jars and actually become something that we reward with success because the generation that's coming, look at those people, they look at personality and they're going to engage in you less than they're going to engage in the rank that you wear. I've been Philip. This is the post millennial generation. Thank you very much.
2: Good evening, my name is James Cook and I use drugs. (laughs) Do you use drugs? Who uses drugs here to enhance their performance? Who who drinks caffeine? Who eats sugar? Who smokes? Who uses EPO? Lord Haig said in the press yesterday that legalisation of cannabis is around the corner and he suggested, Theresa May rebutted it and said, no, we're not going to legalise cannabis. Cannabis oil drove that debate. 17 states in the United States of America, individual states are now looking at legalizing it, and across Europe, four of our coalition uh, countries are legalizing cannabis. Who here can run one and a half miles? show of hands, in under 10 and a half minutes? 10 and a half minutes. Okay, keep your hands up. Can you do it with 30 seconds rest and do it again? Okay, can you do it a third time with 30 seconds rest and do it again? No. If I gave you a red pill, that changed your physiology, that allowed you to excrete the waste products from your muscles quicker, so that you, for the same physical training load and endurance training, you could run three PFAs back-to-back and recover quicker. Would you like that in combat? Would you, no, listen, would you like it? Respond. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
3: Wouldn't
2: you? Provided if it not damage your muscles. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want the punchline on should I? <laughs> Thanks to the Sochi Olympics and the debacle with Russia, we saw what enhanced performance through pharmacology can do for our Olympic athletes. Not our Olympic athletes, but their Olympic athletes. Thanks to sports science and maybe some cycling action over the years, we know that some chemicals in your body can fundamentally change your physiology to make you perform well above average. In a contact situation, when it is life and death, would you want that capability? A capability that is available to you today, commercially, thanks to our sports for our friends, if we wish to take it with a physical will. Yes, Mike, it's gonna hurt like hell a couple of years later. But if it's a matter of life today and dealing with the problem tomorrow, I'll take life today. So my point to you is I use drugs and I think the rest you should in combat. Thank you.
0: never seen a sync matrix for a boxing match. Good evening, my name is Steve and I'm here tonight to highlight the importance of decision point tactics in the future of a multi-domain environment. I'd like to pose three opening statements. Every organisation requires a decision making process that is adaptable, dynamic and flexible to meet the demands placed upon it. All military operations are based on a perception of the future using intelligence and information available. And that every organisation is confronted with a constant stream of challenges. For those that aren't aware what decision point tactics are, they are key decisions any commander may have to face or make during the plan. They drive comp plans based on assumptions and are formed from conditions applied during and aside to the seven questions. I suggest wider acceptance of decision point tactics to enhance the seven questions with a firm understanding of the applicable variables. Will enable any organisation at any level to counter any perceived enemy action in a flexible, dynamic and unrestricted manner. Decision point tactics would therefore become the cornerstone of capability and competence as as it presents commanders with waypoints that can become adaptable to moments of change and create waypoints for success. Allied Joint Doctrine for operational planning makes recommendations based on planning cycles, but it isn't a formalised process in regards to the tactical level assessments and judgments. What I'm posing is that conflict is more art than science. And the only reason for this is that science and maths become fragile in conflict. Operational analysis is only useful to suggest ways, uh, not hows, on how to on how strategic and tactical planning. Decision point tactics create a framework to outline the risk versus reward concepts, a commander's appetite for risk, and the variables enemy action within or apart from the planning cycle. Opportunities can therefore be exploited and specific risks are defined. Thank you for listening.
5: Uh, evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Joe, and today I'm going to talk about the assault on diversity. So recently I attended a talk, um, a bit more boring than this, um, and it was there that a speaker referred to the number of troops that he deployed with, and the number of girls. Um, And this basically passed unchallenged. A few people raised some eyebrows, but that just happened. And I'm not saying this to embarrass the guy, um, although he was rifles, um, but there was a problem of successfully integrating, even in our language, and how diversity is still seen as a bit of an oddity, especially at that tactical level. So it's a trivial but neat example of where we've got a broader rift between really good top-down diversity and inclusion policy, but it's not being implemented at the lowest level. So what message about diversity needs to be bridged between something like an inclusive advertising campaign to normal units and their day-to-day working life? So there's three. Firstly, that diversity strengthens our capabilities by bringing people from wide varieties of life new skills and basically creativity. It means recruiting and retaining the best people from the widest talent pool and not just a tiny little slice. And it means doing the right thing or the moral thing by saying we want to respect everyone's individual and authentic potential. So that's the message, but it's facing real resistance at the ground level. And that's where the people are saying, we're just concerned about political correctness or whether it's the army gone soft or whether they just don't see a need for it, we have no need for diversity. Um, so I think there's four things we can do to counter this, apart from the initial acknowledgement that we have this problem between the top-down policy and the implementation. The first of these is get the little things right. So that's things like stopping calling me a sir, stop having Zulu-themed mess parties, um, stop real ravages of social media, so be that fill your boots, be that WhatsApp chains, which are rife with prejudice and intolerance, uh, basically stop things that make people feel uncomfortable. The second thing is braver middle leadership. So that's your COs and your OCs who are willing to make bold and unpopular decisions in order to do the right thing. The third is better training. So that's not just appointing someone as a DNI rep as a punishment or a box ticking exercise. That's also training in things like unconscious bias, and also just why diversity is important, and why culture affects if it's effectively integrated. And then lastly, I said middle leadership be braver, but it's actually everyone be braver. So basically it's challenging what you know is wrong, and then even if it's awkward, especially if it's awkward, and also if it just seems harmless. So the assault on diversity I think is very real, And it's going to continue to be until the policy that's being pushed down is actually implemented at the lowest level. So I think it's up to us and to implore others to act proactively and positively to make sure that we end up on the right side of history and not the wrong side. Thank you.
6: Uh, Good evening. I'm Patrick Bury. I had the good fortune to write an article for the Wavel Room on uh, multi-domain battle. It was basically based on the uh, briefings by the senior US and CGS last year. Uh, And I wanted to take it as a discussion point and sort of work through what were some of the potential logical conclusions of what they were talking about. Now, everyone here is aware of the D30 hack that David Kilcullen spoke about this afternoon? Yeah? Okay, so don't need to go into that. The main point is, as far as I know, uh, talking the sources, uh, it did actually happen. So th- whether the deception element is there or not, certainly the people on the ground seem to think that it happened. Okay? Um, that is an interesting uh, sort of anecdote uh, as to how we might be in a sort of completely different future operating environment uh, in terms of the Im- impact of technology uh, and social media and whatnot. Uh, a few of the logical conclusions I sort of worked at in terms of driving out is if this is going to happen, the way that the US, which is driving this vision, and you can see that some people are, are copying it, uh, definitely, uh, is what are the yeah what are the logical conclusions of that? One, you know, if you've got. Um, the ability to uh, escalate between cyber and space uh, to sort of combine and uh, complement your operations, there's the very real threat of strategic and tactical compression. You know? And if the, time, uh, the timeline for decision making is uh, collapsing, essentially, then the uh, ability and the uh, risk of miscalculation uh, increases. And the, the, the need to uh, make sure that your actions are understood uh, and uh, the, re- the motivations behind those actions are understood uh, becomes much more important. Secondly then you have this operational focus if you move it down to the idea that there will be, and I was alluded to in the talk today, one of them, uh, the idea of pulses. Uh, Martin Lubicki talks about this, you'll have windows of opportunity where you've got a lot of enhanced information uh, decision-making and then you'll lose it all. Yeah? And how do you operate across those two sort of speeds of warfare. Um, I know work has been done on by the army with this in terms of the implications for command instead of uh, massive commands that we've seen in the last 15 years it's going to go much smaller and much lighter at the operational level with uh, reach back strategic commands potentially and those secure communications are going to be an important part of the whole equation. Um, There's a logistics element to this, there's a mobility element to this. What I would take away from this, one of the interesting things is if you look at uh, some of the future of war scholarship, generals have always said this is the future, this is the vision, this is the way we're going. Yeah? A lot of the time they're wrong. right so uh, for example that I saw General John Allen a couple of weeks ago and he spoke about AI and it being involved in lethal autonomous weapon systems there was a guy who has a PhD in AI he stood up and said but do you realize that the way that AI do their algorithms they cannot be tracked back and therefore you can't know the decision-making that the AI uh, in the algorithmic sense uh, you can't actually track that decision and General John Allen didn't know so there's a very interesting aspect of what we're saying we can deliver yeah and what is actually the way that we could trace that.
0: We hope you enjoyed those highlights from Wavel Talks. You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And of course, you can head over to wavelroom.com to see all of our latest articles. Thanks for listening. See you next time.